Chats from the Blog Cabin. This is your favorite time of the week with your number one one podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Chats from the Blog Cabin. You know, the show where I virtually invite people into the Blog Cabin to chat about life. And today we're chatting about high achievers and how we must conquer to reignite and re-engage with life. And we're chatting it with the author of The King and I. Welcome. I mean, The Kid and the King, excuse me, The King and I was a Broadway show. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> Welcome to the show and tell us a little about yourself. It's great to be here, Melissa. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, I mean, just right off the bat, the kid and the king could have easily been called the kid and the queen. It just happened to be the K's worked out. I mean, you know, the marketing people like you can't put slash queen. So if just for anyone listening right now, it is extremely applicable to both sexes. It's not gender based at all. Um, but, you know, the the book came about as a result of wanting to basically share a point of view that I had a kind of a privileged look into. Um, I had the good fortune of growing up in a privileged environment. I was around a lot of high achieving people. I was around a lot of uh, people, quote unquote, living the good life in the locations I lived in Scarsdale, New York, in New York City, and you know, San Francisco and Newport Beach and Malibu and Santa Fe and Telluride and all these places I was surrounded by, you know, what, you know, what, you know, Instagram, Instagrammable lives, basically, you know, and um, myself included in that list, I spent a good part of, I would say the majority of my life really struggling with showing up in the world um, with an inside that matched the outside. Maybe, maybe that's the way to say it, right? Like, I, I think I was a really, you know, I learned to perform really well. Um, I, I learned how to shake the hand and say the right thing and pull my shoulders back. And, you know, I was born this way with this head of hair and the height. And like, there was a certain level of like, there was a game to be played. And I quickly learned that if I said certain things in the right sequence, and I said it with a certain tonality, and I looked people in the eye, there was a way to kind of get by. And I was good at it for a lot of the time. And it wasn't until... I mean, you know, I'm 51 now and I feel like I just kind of getting, you know, mm-hmm. kind of falling into my lane. I mean, I'm listening to your story a little bit about, you know, I, you know, you got the empty nester now and like now mm-hmm. I'm, you know, recreating yourself right yeah. now. So I had been on a journey of personal development from a very, very young age. And I, after studying philosophy and getting into existentialism and, and starting to take on this question of what it is to be human, I was trying to deal with my own stuff and my own mommy and daddy issues, if you will, right? Like my, my I had the classic Indian immigrant parents who were just school education, that kind of thing. And of course, all with great intention of bettering the next generation, right? And so 
you know, kind of with that in the background, I was out there kind of, you know, and, and it was interesting because like friends of mine, they went on to like business school or law school. They went to Wall Street. Um, they went to, you know, med school. They became doctors. And, um, you know, I headed out west and kind of in search of myself. And, you know, I... I ended up in business as a philosophy major, which was kind of interesting. And that whole journey and my first job as a ghostwriter for a book on women entrepreneurs. And I found myself in the business world. And over time, I was fascinated with business and strategy and realized my brain actually works that way. But what I found was over time, it's like the business wasn't that difficult people were people were challenging the, the individuals that came to the arena and were dancing around in whatever business i was looking at became challenging and so suddenly it was like it, it just kind of these rivers collided between like personal development and business strategy and this notion of how is it that really really bright people people with you know incredible educations and degrees and even titles and responsibilities can still act out in such bizarre ways that are not actually in alignment with who they say they are or what you would expect someone like that with that much intelligence um, to do. Like, why are why can't they show up on time? What are they procrastinating about? How are they confused about this? Why are they getting triggered and frustrated about stuff? I mean, these guys, you know, PhD level, you know, Harvard Business School, Stanford Law, I mean, like, it didn't matter. They were all up against this thing. And so my way of handling this was this notion that, you know, what if there's just two parts of us, this young person, this okay. kid that went through what it went through during the early years and that those kind of experiences, whatever they may have been, they whatever marks they left back then, may be inadvertently affecting how we show up today as adults and we have our stories and, and so the premise of the book is we underestimate the extent to which that that's actually happening in our adult lives and the kid and the king was this juxtaposition of these two identities that i'm arguing can coexist with one another without being in an adversarial relationship and bring some more love and compassion to that so long answer but that's how i got there I love how you said you were a philosophy major, but then you ended up in the business world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. The, the first part, when you first started talking about how, you know, we show up to the real world and how we show up in our life, it made me think about a lot of times the, right, I know it's a catchphrase now, but the imposter syndrome. Oh, yeah, and that a lot absolutely. of people feel like they're an imposter. People knew the real, real me are the real person behind the, the show, are the real person behind this, the real person behind it, they won't like me. Yeah. So let's talk about how high achievers, how they actually face that imposter syndrome. Wow, yeah, that's a, it's, it's a big question. And let me see if I can kind of take a, well, we can slice this up in a couple of ways. So oh, imposter syndrome, and I, you know, I take that on in the book. Um, I think what's happening is that I think all human beings to some degree are facing some level of imposter syndrome. And, and here's why. Um, I would argue that the strategies that we have taken on to bring ourselves to a level of success, albeit 
successfully, right? Like, mm -hmm. I mean, the clients myself, I mean, I, you know, I'll give you an example. I became a very gregarious person, okay? And I became a gregarious person because of my experience as a young child being of Indian descent in a small Jewish community outside of New York. I was different. And so the way in which I handled being different was to become a likable guy, to become very friendly, learn how to do things and perform in a certain way that would gain the admiration of my peers and my, you know, my, the kids in school and parents and teachers. And so that became, for me, a positive attribute that I leaned into my whole life. And the side of that that worked, worked well. I was able to get along. I was invited to things. I dated. I, I got connected with. I became the class president, right? I became this certain person, this, this personality. But, but the beginnings of being gregarious came from a wounded, hurt child mm. who experienced the kids, you know, running around in a circle yelling, Shashin doesn't have any friends, or the time that I was on the assembly school line and, you know, a student behind me, you know, noticed I smelled like curry. And, you know, in the seventies, you know, India wasn't that, mm -hmm. we were, people weren't that tuned in. So it was different. And, and the shock of being so different had me, I would argue, have to become gregarious. Mm -hmm. And so where does that become problematic and where does that how does that relate to imposter syndrome well if my strategy in life is basically overcoming this wound by slapping this gregariousness on top of it mm -hmm. well i'm still now having to be and so having to be this person becomes a chore becomes a job and it actually can get in the way so the the plus side is like i don't want to be become a non-gregarious person, mm -hmm. but I also don't want to have to be in every single situation. And here's where it showed up for me, and this is when it became really clear. When it came to creating boundaries for myself with people, I was a boundaryless person. When it came to advocating for myself, when it came to salary negotiations or anything like that, I was pretty ineffective. At the end of the day, how I related to the world was, I'm terrified that you're going to run around in a circle and tell me that I don't have any friends or you're going to exclude me from the group in some mm -hmm. kind of way. And that's what I've got to keep at bay because, well, I'll just be gregarious and I don't want to create conflict right now. And that's a that's a really great example, I think, mm -hmm. for me that illustrates like the, the positive and negatives of a strategy that was born in a very young period of my life that I carried into my adulthood without the understanding or the healing of what was underneath that. So I think that at the end of the day, everyone is coming to the table, either they're being, I mean, it, it can look like this, like being good boys and good girls, mm -hmm. right? So my whole context of life now is, doing the right thing, being a good girl. It's the right thing to do. Whether you're a person of faith or just within a community, I am following my social norms. I'm doing the right thing. And we start doing those things in order to gain the affection, the attention, the admiration of our parents mm -hmm. and our peers in our community. And that becomes this 
very kind of almost addictive kind of feedback mechanism that at the end of the day, when I'm dealing with my own fears, doubts, insecurities, and worries about life in general that comes with the package mm -hmm. of being human, I'm still trying to be a good boy and a good girl out there, but I don't feel like a good boy or a good girl. So I've got to continue to show up mm -hmm. to get my feedback loop back in and back in. And it, and it becomes a very exhausting process. And there's some people that are fantastic at it. I mean, that are really, really, really good at it. And it looks incredible. The other side of that coin is the rebel, right? I'll show you, you know, I will create a massive amount of wealth. I'll create a massive amount of success. I will, you know, whatever it is to show you that I can do it, but still underneath that is a hurt little girl, a hurt little boy, some mom, some dad, some teacher, some somebody in their life told them that they couldn't or they were ashamed of where they came from, their background. And what they're doing is just slapping on top of that, I'll show you. And it's just this gigantic overcompensation strategy that we call life and success and it's what we do and arguably there's nothing really quote unquote wrong with that but when you start getting older what you start to see is that that fuel that drive whatever was driving that success or whatever got you to where you are that you got married and had kids and you know you have this family all of that suddenly if the inner work has not been done if you don't have the right understanding of from where that motivation was coming, you will have that day of reckoning with yourself mm -hmm. again and again until you deal with it. Yep, that is so true. And we need to take a quick commercial break, but sure. then we'll be right back and we'll talk about how we deal with that emotional reckoning. How, how, we'll get to that point. Sounds great. Chats from the blog cabin. Hit subscribe and don't miss the next episode. Chats from the blog cabin. Enjoying this episode? Leave a review now. Branding yourself begins with self-reflection. Taking stock of your strengths. Is there a particular talent that helps you shine? In this series, founder of Pierre Branding Group, Lydia Pierre, sits down with the executives and entrepreneurs to shed light on why it is important to brand yourself and get ahead. And we are back chatting no. with Machine, and we're talking about how we get out of that strategy of overcompensating for ourselves and getting back to where, okay, we're saying, okay, we're going to act normally now. And we're not going <laughs> to slap a bandaid on stuff, right. keep slapping a bandaid on stuff. And I right. think your book delves into a lot because you have, it's not just a regular book. You have a lot of exercises in here as well. It's not yes. just a book you read and you say, Oh yeah. Okay. All right. That's another self-help, but no, you have a lot of great exercises and a lot of fill in the blank stuff too. 
for a lot of self work as well. I mean, it was, I basically, it's my playbook. It's, 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 if you're a coach out there and, and watching this, if you're in, in any kind of, I mean, get the book and work through the exercise yourself and use them, use them with your clients. It's there for people to use. I, there was a certain point at which I couldn't help the number of people that I wanted to. And I wasn't really interested in doing courses or anything like that. It's like, let me just make this really, really accessible. Make this because this is just a compilation of a variety of different courses and readings and teachings over the years. I've just taken this on for myself. So the book is literally a journey of what I would take a client through and actually a description of the journey that I went through to get to where I am today. So how did you get to the point where you weren't the gregarious little boy you you weren't slapping a Band-Aid on it anymore and you were like, okay, I just have to be true to who I am? Oh, my God. You know, it's really it's a great question because, I, you know, I, it's my my the latest joke was I named my company Coherent Strategies 20 years ago. And they were like, what is Coherent Strategies? And it was a book called Chaos to Coherence. It was the heart math people. But something inside of me knew that that was the journey that I needed to go on. <laughs> and I swear it's taken me up until a couple of years ago to really finally, I don't know, take a page out of my own book, find that inner alignment. I mean, some of this sounds so like, you know, Pollyannish, but it it really is taking yourself on as this perpetual an ongoing project, if you will, there's no end to this work in my mind. And I think that's the key is that you got to be able to just take on yourself. And so for me, it's happened, I mean, progressively, but I would arguably say in the last couple of years is really where the rubber hit the road. And, you know, finally, maybe it is the wisdom finally, you know, turning 50 or whatever it is where you've been, you know, had enough time in the saddle, but it's been, it's been an incredibly uncomfortable ride. It's been a, I've been extremely stubborn along the way. I've had, uh, you know, the, the, I understand it intellectually, you know, version acutely aware of all of my dysfunction and still acting out in crazy ways. I've had, um, that feeling of being an imposter working with extraordinary people thinking to myself at the end of what am I doing? Right. Or like getting done with the end of the day and like, you know, having that glass of wine that turned into a bottle by the time I was done with the day. And I've gone through all of those motions over the past 20, 25 years now. And, you know, it's all been this perpetual journey to finally just say, hey, are you going to stop fighting with yourself? Are you going to stop, you know, doing things that do run counter to who you say you are mm -hmm. what does like self-love look like what does taking care of yourself look like what is why do i need to periodically cleanse my body because i just toxify it all the time or why do i need to do these little boot camps and all of this like what if like i actually fell in love with myself and and that sounds like some again some pollyanna kind of thing but i'll tell you covid you know it, it was like you know, the way I describe it is like if there was a little crack on the windshield on the passenger side, you're like, I'll deal with that chip later. You know, like it's like mm -hmm. a little tiny little. COVID was like anything that was in front of me just came right into my face. And it was like, I got to deal with this. And so there was a whole lot of lifestyle changes from 
you know, whether it's alcohol, whether it's the food I put into my body, at my exercise routine, my meditation practice, everything started to align and relationships, things. I mean, and again, it wasn't like I was not doing those things, but at some point when you really get the kind of profundity of the mm -hmm. whole deal and where you're like, wow, I, I mean, I'm in an argument with myself at the end of the day and with nobody else but myself. Mm -hmm. Okay. COVID opened up my eyes in a way that I hadn't had it open before. And that's really when the journey began. So how do we stop being our own worst critic? Because that's what it is. It's like we're our own worst critic. We are so down on ourselves that yeah. we tend to, even if somebody doesn't even see something, we see it and we see the flaw and we just beat ourselves up over the flaw. Yeah. And, and, and you're describing, I would say 99% of the population where we actually beating ourselves up as some kind of motivational tool, right? So, you know, we, we find ourselves with an intention and an idea, and then we go out there and then we kind of say, we're going to do it. And then we don't do it, or we do it kind of partially, or we stop doing it eventually. And then what do we do? instead of just realizing we stopped it, then we go into this whole shame and guilt cycle that kicks in. And then we feel badly as if that's gonna matter. But where it matters is the mechanism then goes into, okay, I'm gonna feel badly and then I'm gonna crash and then I'm gonna pick myself up and I'll tell the Shiva story and be the, I'm gonna rise up and, and mm -hmm. I'm gonna get pumped up again only to fall back down. And so, you know, I, I think that at the core of the messaging of the book is, is to, to the most simple version is I've got to change the relationship that I have with myself rather than having it adversarial. I, like, so put it. So one of my mentors said to me, he's like, Shashin, you're just not that interesting. <laughs> you're just not that interesting it's like the same story he's like it's so predictable it's like yeah the indian immigrant son blah 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 poor little kid you know kids ran around in a circle made fun of you and insecurity da, da, da. not good enough not lovable you know you got a 99 your dad said you needed 100 i mean okay so what and he said you know that the patterns are so repetitive that it's not even interesting anymore. And so I remember when he said that, it really did open up my eye to just say, ah, okay. And so the, the, the call to action in the book is to now do the work again and to develop a familiarity with this part of you called the kid, right? Mm -hmm. and understand it and distinguish that kid so so clearly with as much color as you possibly can like all of the stories whether it happened or it didn't even happen i've had clients be like you know i don't even know if that happened to me but i've been saying it like it happened right i'm like wow that's interesting right so like we have this this version and 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 really start to just understand that under these circumstances, with these tonalities, with these people, with the uh, you know, with the the volume of their voice, with these certain catchwords and phrases, um, with these kinds of situations, what is predictable is this little kid is going to wreak havoc on my life and start making me feel insecure. It's going to trigger me. It's going to 
caused this response for me to defend, protect, justify, explain, or whatever it may be. And it's just this handful of things. Like, so even on these, like going live on video, mm-hmm. a year ago, I would never in a million years do there live on video, right? But suddenly it's like, I know that little kid's going like, oh my God, should I look at myself and my hair is like, oh God, I think it's, I'm off. And actually it's, it's the inverse relation. I mean, it's just this incessant chatterbox. Mm-hmm. And so I know that now, I know that really, really well. And so before this, the conversation I had with myself was like, I call him Bobby. I'm like, Bobby, it's okay. I got this. We don't know this woman. It's going to be fine. She's not going to hurt us. It's all okay. She's not going to gotcha anything. You've got nothing to hide. All you got to do is be yourself. And that was a conversation that I'll have with myself prior to getting into this. So the idea is to, to, to what if, I, I think the expectation that I had and my clients have, and it's something that I'm really explicit about when I start working with someone is like, I'm never going to get rid of that kid. I'm never going to get rid of that insecurity, that self-doubt, mm-hmm. that worry, and that incessant chatter. What I can help you with is developing a familiarity with the circumstances and the situations that it will, that will bring up that part of you and actually work with you to decrease what I call, I call it the ID. It's like the intensity and duration. We ID the emotional state and then we ask, how intensely do I want to experience this and for how long? And the moment we can have that level of understanding that that is going to happen. I am going to get triggered likely today as I go talk to my landscaper about some trees that are dying, right? I'm likely going to, the the, the conditions are ripe for me to have a reactive moment. And I know that that's really predictable. He said one thing and he did another thing. Okay, that's a predictable scenario where my little kid needs to get in there, roll up his sleeves and go out. Like, no, that's not going to get me the outcome that I want. The outcome that I want is I want to figure out a solution to the bark beetle issue that we got right now. Okay, great. Well, me coming to the situation with that childlike energy that like, oh my God, it's unfair. You did something wrong and I'm triggered, which is so predictable. I have to just put that in parentheses right now and just say, okay, little buddy, I got this. Our outcome is this. Let's approach this in a different way. And there's no easy way to do that. It takes commitment, time in the saddle, repetition again and again and again. And what I tell my clients, it's hard to do, but it's hard to continue to keep acting out and leaving yourself miserable and being alone at the end of the day because no one wants to be around all that negativity anymore. That's the point. I love that. Now you mentioned also there's like some exercises people can do as, as well as letter writing that they can do for themselves. So yeah. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Like, you know, so, I mean, here's, I mean, this is the, I mean, for anyone listening right now, it's, I mean, this is, I, this was the breakthrough moment for me. So, on page 11 of the book, I talk about this exercise called the five and five. And it was a therapist of mine that just said, you know, hey, listen, Shashin, like what are the you know five characteristics about you that you love? What are five characteristics that you would like to change? And so I wrote down, I said, I'm gregarious, compassionate, aware of others' needs. I'm intelligent, strategic and loving. And that was my, you know, kind of that's what I wrote down. 
And then she said, okay, what about the negative? And I said, well, I'm a procrastinator. I'm definitely overly critical. I'm judgmental. I'm intolerant. And I'm kind of a rebel. And I was kind of like, oh, okay. And then on, you know, on page 12, I, what, you know, I, when I remember staring at the list and I had this moment where I was like a gregarious, intolerant rebel, an intelligent, critical procrastinator, a compassionate, judgmental critic, a loving, intolerant man of others' needs. And I was like, okay, this set up the problem for me. I was like, this is what's going on. And so then, you know, the book then carries you on this journey to then just say, okay, well, how did I become those people? Like, how did I become, Mm -hmm. you know, gregarious? How did I become loving? And so typically what I would say is that, you know, those traits and attributes were kind of generated out of our childhood experiences. So I became those things because I was in this environment with these parents in the school, in the school district. I may not have experienced a lot of love in my life, so I'm going to be loving. You know, I don't, I didn't have a lot of, so I, so there was money issues. I'm going to be generous. So it's almost like a reaction to so many of these things. And a lot of times when, if you do this for yourself, you'll see that if I call, if you call me the opposite of loving, I'd be like, what? Like, no, like, of course I'm loving. Like that's, you know, it's an attachment to that. Like that's kind of like how I had to be to survive in my life. And then when we look on the other side of the negative attributes, we realize that those attributes are there as a way to protect ourselves. There's some like, mm-hmm. they, they, you know, as long as I can, you know, push people away and keep some distance or procrastinate, a lot of my life was, you know, basically hedging my bet against real success. So, well, you know, I have this, act, like I had to learn about how being those things actually were working for me and serving me and actually helping me. And what I realized it was like helping me keep safe. Right. Like if I can keep looking outward and be judgmental and critical or I can procrastinate and I can I can do those things, it takes the responsibility off of me and it goes to this other thing. And so that was one of the first kind of ahas. So then the book takes you through a series of exercises. One is a letter writing exercise to your kid where you're actually taking the time to acknowledge from the king or queen's perspective this child's experience as it was experienced by the child at that time. Mm -hmm. And I say that really intentionally because so many people, myself included, like that was such a long time ago. Like, what are you talking about? Like, that was a while ago. Like, and you, you had this idea that time heals old wounds. And I completely disagree with that. Time does not heal old wounds. Time separates us from old wounds so that it's more manageable. But man, those old wounds are sitting right there. It's the way our brain processes information. It is right there looking for a similar circumstances or anything that smells like a similar circumstances in which that old wound can be revisited. And if you get honest with yourself, you'll see it everywhere in your life. And so you go through that. The next exercise is a, a letter writing exercise to your parents. And the goal here is, you know, the, the letter to yourself is more, I would argue, a more of an act of self-love, like really like giving yourself this moment of like, yeah, that happened. And 
when that happened, it was real and it was terrifying. It was, you know, and the, and the book walks you through the exercise. But then the next part is like, well, okay, that's all true. But then in spite of that, you know, you went to college, you whatever, you did whatever you yes. had to do. And you realize that I, you know, I had to drive the first time. I had to go out on a date the first time. I had to give a presentation the first time. I had to get a job the first time. You start to realize that everything along the road was for the first time and that there was something inside of me that had the resources and the ability to meet that challenge. So it's a really great reminder. So it is a real like loving exercise for yourself. And the, the one for the parents is more about realizing the extent to which any kind of negativity towards your parents at a certain point in life, and I'll take it one step further, I'll argue that if you can't move towards real emotional generosity, real generosity to your parents, you're leaving some money on the table in your experience of life. And that is because is if you if you approach this from, well, you know, um, you know, they were just, you know, even there's there's a, there's a lot of sneaky ways, right? I mean, there are people that are just upset. Couldn't stand my mom. She was that way. I'll never be like her. Boom. That's easy. We can deal with that. And we mm -hmm. go through that, you know, your parents, for the most part, never woke up and said to themselves, you know what? Today, I'm going to totally mess with Shashin. Or today, I'm going to say some stuff that's going to sit on his shoulder and come up in every single relationship he has and every single authority figure. I'm going to do some shit. I'm just going to just, I'm going to go there with him today. They never said that. Mm -hmm. And we live our lives in a way as if that was the case. So the letter opens the doorway to moving towards, I wonder, I mean, the moment I said to my dad, what was it like having me as a son? Mm. What was it like having me as a son? I'm so sorry. It must have been <laughs> hard to have me as your son. And it like flipped the switch. It was like, whoa. Right. Think about that. And suddenly I was like, oh, my God, well, my dad was this immigrant. He came along the way and he's a doctor and he tried to get us the best education. And I didn't get into an Ivy League school. And, you know, I didn't you know I was in Santa Fe, New Mexico and skiing and finding myself while the rest of his Indian people and his community were talking about their kids going to med school. So you really start to find and actually the book ends with the last chapter and that's why i hope those of you who read it get to the last chapter or just skip to it and read why the rest of the book is important is because it is called the greatest skip because the reconciliation with my dad was probably the greatest release and wow. the thing that freed me up into the world to be really effective and to be in this place to be able to do this kind of work so that's that exercise now all of that is wrapped around the five questions. And I think this is really, if you don't want to write the letters, if you don't want to do any of it, look at it this way. Anytime you're in a situation when you get triggered, five questions that can you can walk through each situation after it happened to start bringing to surface where the potential work is for you to go do. So if you get triggered, for example, what so there's a couple of examples in the book but if we just take an example but i come home and my spouse says blah 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 right you know you dot 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 i didn't and we did bop, bop, whatever it is you've got to be able to differentiate for the first question is what actually did you observe meaning 
can I look at the situation objectively? So the way in which you describe that situation is, I walked into the house, my spouse said, this word, this word, this mm -hmm. word, this word. No tone, no angry, That those are all interpretations. So we, we distinguish between this idea of like, I observed some objective criteria. So for example, a great example is like the weather, right? So it's 66 degrees here. It's arguably warm for those of us who are here in the Rocky Mountains. Now, friends of mine visiting from Florida would be like, wow, I got to put on a puffy coat. What is true is 66 degrees. That we can all agree on. But whether it's hot or whether it's cold or whether I need a jacket or whether it's not or whether it's going to be comfortable or uncomfortable or there's too much sun or too little sun is all subject to what I then concluded about that objective data. Now, this is where I think the rubber hits the road because that's where the discovery from question two, what did I conclude? Well, that's where you have total responsibility. Right. So you can now start to own that based on my experience where I come from and all those childhood experiences, all those situations that you went through, all of the fights that you've had, all of the disagreements you've had, all the times you felt uncomfortable, all the different kinds of people, avatars, everything that possibly has come before this moment in time has led you to a conclusion about some very objective information. Third question is, well, after I concluded that, how did I feel? Mm -hmm. Well, that conclusion now, like, well, he said, blah, blah, blah. Well, I felt like he was disrespectful and he was really angry. Well, what did that make me feel? Well, it made me angry. It created an emotion. So the conclusion that I came up with based on some objective criteria is now caused an emotional reaction in me. We call that a trigger, right? So now I'm triggered. Oh my gosh, right? Then the question is, well, from that triggered place, what action did you take? Right. And so like I la it's either one or the other. It's like I lashed out mm -hmm. you know, and I told him and I went on, 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 on right. Mm -hmm. Like I, I had to defend, protect, you know, justify, explain all of that in that moment. I got put up against my edge or a lot of times I put my tail between my legs and I just walked away or I became passive aggressive or I just I let it go. It's like, no, it just it just was another storage piece that's going to be used as evidence for the next time that that happens again. See, he's just like that or she's just like mm -hmm. that. I told you so. And then the next question is, did that action, did what you do, the action that you take move you <clears throat> closer to or farther away from your intended outcome. And most of the time when people hear that, they're like, intended outcome, you're like, exactly. I didn't have an intended outcome. I was just reacting to the world. And that's the premise of the book is that we don't actually go into situations with an outcome in mind. Mm -hmm. We have an expectation. Yep. And that's where we get tripped and that's where we stumble upon ourselves. So it's in that five questions that there's a whole world that can be discovered and you know like really take that on take it on for 30 days and see what you find you'll realize how uninteresting you are and how many <laughs> of like you know, the problems are the same ones that are just showing up again and again like it like right it, it, it's it's truly revealing and it's super confronting the premise of this book is simple it's application forces you into places that you don't want to go at the end of the day because why do i know that because 
you're getting triggered and it's a lot easier for us to be victimized by the world and have a story about victimization or frustration mm -hmm. or anxiety or worry and the this and the politics, whatever, name your poison. It's not easy to become responsible for how we feel. And so it is a journey. And what I've found is that the more I spend time on my own internal conversation, the better I feel and the more compassion, more understanding and more just fluidity I have in this world. And so, you know, you might be just fine right now, whoever's listening right now, you might be like, yeah, you know, I get it. You know, and listen, I got it. I got it. I understood it. Like, I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know, I did a course last week. Yeah, you know, I did that. You know, I was in that. Yeah, you know, yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah, right. There's a certain level where the way I look at this now, it's like, it's almost like I was born with this gun on my hip that I can't do anything about. And it's in a holster and it's got a safety, but it's fully loaded. And if I don't tend to that, if I don't actually like handle this on a day-to-day -day basis, sometimes multiple times a day, it is gonna shoot me in the foot or it's gonna shoot someone else inadvertently. And that's just how life is. There's no surgery for the gun. There's nothing for the gun. And I, I think that if you can look at it that way and take that on from a sense of responsibility, yep. I think you have a real opportunity to really change some things. Well, I feel like we've gone through a whole therapy session. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I can, you can tell I'm passionate about it. Sorry. Like I, I could talk about this for hours because it is something that I see all the time. And now I'm looking at the way people are and I see people show up in certain ways. And I'm like, I wonder what happened to him. I wonder what her story is. Mm. I wonder what her father was like. I wonder what her mom was like. I wonder what his mom was like. I wonder what would make someone continue to act that way. What would make someone believe those things? How, and we're getting more and more polarized, even more and more so. And don't want to touch the politics side, but it was really interesting for me to step into the world of like, I wonder where you grew up. I wonder what you were taught. I wonder what your conditioned reality was and why there might be a fear of this thought or this kind of person or that kind, right? I wonder, tell me about that. And suddenly, like now we've got some, there's some room there. There's some more oxygen in the room. But right now we're like, we've got things that are just sucking the oxygen right out of the conversation with the most important people in our lives. And we're yeah. just content on being fine. And yeah, you know, and that's why I said like reignite, reengage, live your life like it matters to something, to somebody, if not yourself, right? I do have a question about the letter yeah. that you wrote. Yeah. To your parents. Did you show your parents the letter or did you kind of? I did. In 2000, oh, wow. I read it out loud to them. Yeah. Uh, I read it out loud to my dad. That was the one. And I hadn't spoken to him in about five years. And I was so angry. And it was about me taking full responsibility for myself and my life at that time. And, you know, the three parts of the letter, one is the rant, I'll call it, where you just rant. Like, and it starts off with, I've been, so in the book, I challenge people and I've literally lost clients over this because they were like, I don't need to go there. I'm not, I don't, I, I say to my clients, I go, you owe your parents an apology. And so, sometimes they're just like, 
I do not. And I'm like, you do, you know, and the fact that it bothers you that much mm -hmm. is the reason why. And, and so, you know, the first part of it's like, it says, I've been really pissed off at you pretending that I'm not. The truth is that at 51 years old, I'm still holding on to the fact that da, 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 da. The next part of the letter is, by me continuing to hold on to this perspective, I ultimately render myself a victim. Having these thoughts and beliefs show up in my personal relationships with authority figures, with people at work, my ability to perform, to execute on things that I'm going after, to finish and accomplish, right? You just go and get the reality of what it's like to continue to be the product of bad parenting or people that were, you know, not the best. And like the anger and the frustration or the righteousness that you hold towards how they were with you. And then the third paragraph is literally the paragraph about emotional generosity. And that is like, okay, I have a moment here where I can actually move towards emotional generosity. And I would arguably say the point of this book is to become a person that is emotionally generous, period. And that if you're not feeling that emotional generosity towards somebody or someone that's wronged you, the opportunity is to figure out a way to keep moving in that direction. And I will tell you, I have heard some of the most horrific, like sexual abuse story, one in particular from like the eight up until the age of 16, full penetration, like the in, like horrific story. And we went through the emotional generosity. It was to find out what could have happened to that man, her father that would have allowed that to actually take place. And she went back and actually there's a whole big story about how she went back, confronted him, talked to him after years of being gone, 20 years of being gone and, and watching him cry and learn the story about how he was the sacrificial lamb in his small little community in South America. And his parents would give him to the priest knowing full well that that priest was going to abuse their young son. And he knew it and he knew that his parents knew it and he didn't know what to do. And we dug in so deep on this, but the whole idea that she was his favorite and that was the best that he could do. And I'm not going to get into like right mm -hmm. or wrong and victim. I mean, well, listen, nice. every, we're, we're, it's just, it's a whole nother topic for a whole nother conversation. But what was possible in this case, I'll just say it like that was that that release, the ability to let some of this go, to find some place, set her free yeah. more than anything else. And that was it, and was able to bury her father, um, I don't know, seven, seven years ago, and give the eulogy to a man that had done what I was arguably the most atrocious thing I had ever heard as a practitioner, listening to somebody tell me about what their experience of life was. So. The idea that you can move towards generosity, not like, you know, feeling pity for them mm -hmm. or, or thinking that you're smarter or better than them, but to really get into their world and just be like, wow, what was going on for them at that time while you were growing up? And you can say they were irresponsible, they were reckless, they were alcoholics, they divorced, they were not responsible, they took medication. I mean, I've heard everything. But imagine what it must have been like up until that point where they went there and see if you can move in that direction. I'll tell you, the first time I hit that spot, I was like, hell no, no way.
I'm not going there. I don't want to touch this with a 10 foot pole. But then I asked the question, who do I need to be to give to my dad, to give to my mom, everything that I had been asking of them? Mm -hmm. I was like, well, they, they're not communicative. They're not very loving. They don't seem to really care. And I was like, well, how am I, am I doing any of those things? Am I being that? And I realized like, I'm not going to do it because they're not doing it for me. And so I don't care. Like, I don't need them. I'm okay. I'm fine. We just agreed to disagree. We're good. I love them. I'll go back for the holidays. I'm fine. You can go through the rest of your life like that and you could probably navigate pretty well. But the opportunity is, is to become someone that is capable of that kind of just being someone that's free to give in that way. And that came right off the same prayer, St. Francis of Assisi. You know, seek not to be understood, to be understanding. Seek not to be loved, but to be loving, right? It's in giving that we receive. Can you really step into that? I'll tell you, I couldn't, but the journey that it put me on, that what I had to confront inside of myself was the greatest journey I've ever been on. Wow. That... How long did it take that journey though? Painstaking because, you know, of course I didn't do it like, you know, <laughs> I just did it my own way. The incoherent strategies was, you know, it was, it was like, I wished, I mean, there was a time I used to think about my dad's plane crashing when I was a kid to like, you know, like, I mean, really like so angry to, you know, not talking to him to, you know, saying, well, he's my dad and I love him. And, you know, and that's about as much as I can say, but like, I still held this righteousness on, but the moment I, I think, I think in time, I think what it was for me is that at some point I just realized being in the work and really continue to look through this stuff. I was just tired. I was just like, I can't believe that at this stage of my life, I mean, I think the question intrigued me like, wait, I can't give this? Like, why? Like, I mean, it really struck me as like, wait, but then if, if I can't give to him freely, well, what does that say about me? That, well, he wronged me? So like, at what at that time was four, at 40 years old, like, is that the conversation that I now have to live with? Like, well, he wronged me? And like, really? Like, in what way? Like, is he still wronging me? Like, Okay, so he's like asking me questions that appear to be a little bit judgmental. And as I go through my filter, what happened? What did I make? You know, what did I conclude? What emotion? Like, I'm just getting tripped up in this little circuitry that's been going on a long, long time. And it's actually not true. The guy genuinely loves me and the guy genuinely wants the best for me. I mean, even the ones that are critical and like, you know, that's their way of showing love. One of my favorite stories was this guy, he was like a lawyer, 58 years old. And he was like, you know, it was this whole story about, you know, this sweater that his grandmother, you know, his mom gave him. And, you know, did you wear your sweater? Did you wear it? And, you know, like how emasculated he was because his mom always asked him about the sweater. And, you know, it's like finally it was like, just put your sweater in the car and just tell your mom, be like, Ma, I got the sweater. It's in the car. Don't worry about it. Right. Like, but he had this drama about this, this 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 thing about the mom doing this to him but the mom was literally just that was her way of showing love mm. that was how she could express love it's like did you wear your sweater oh she doesn't trust him. what did you so 
Great example. What did mom say? Did you bring your sweater? What did I conclude? She doesn't trust me. She's still infantilizing me. I'm still a child in her mind. What did it make you feel? Made me feel small, little, angry, frustrated, you know, disrespected. What emotional state, you know, right? I mean, like you just kind of get into it and you start seeing it at that level. Yeah. Wow. Our time is almost up. I mean, yeah. you have dropped so many truth bombs and so many different things here that, I mean, I feel like we could have spent hours just talking about some of the stuff that you've dropped. Yeah. Is there one last little nugget that you want to share? Oh man, I hope this, you know, you know, I dedicated the book to the reader that if you're, you, if you've lasted this long and have been listening for this long, just, you know, just take yourself on as your primary right now. Take those five questions and just play around with them. Just start and realize there's no course or end to this dynamic. You are going to be faced with darkness and light for the rest of your life. You are going to have to come to grips and reconcile the fact that there is going to be this voice no matter what you say or think or want or desire. The only way that goes away is in death, as far as I can tell. I mean, you can medicate it, and I'm not qualified to talk about any of that stuff. But I really do believe wherever you are, make the time to do the inner work. Make the time to do the introspection. Make the time to start looking at yourself through a new lens and realize that you're just nothing more than this kind of pattern series of circumstances that reacts and responds to the world in a very, very predictable way. That's actually not that interesting. And it's actually setting you apart farther and farther from the people that are really counting on you and love you and just take care of you. It does get better and it's not easy, but it's not easy not doing it. And that's what I found. Wow. Now tell people where they can find you at. Um, the website is shasheen.com. It's spelled S-H-A-S-H-E-E-N.com. Um, on Amazon, the book is on Audible, Kindle, and uh, paperback. Yeah, you can get a copy and just order it right on Amazon. Um, and it's called The Kid and the King, The Hidden Inner Struggle High Achievers Must Conquer to Reignite and Reengage with Life. I want to thank you so much, Shashin, for coming on and for sharing and for writing the book and for your journey into writing the book, because you. you can tell you had a lot to do, a lot of work to do to actually get to the point where you wrote the book. True. Six year process. Finally. Yeah. I think I think it actually took longer than that because you were talking about. Right. You had to get to the point where you were able to even write the book or even work on yourself. So. Very, very true. It was, yeah, agreed. And I think a lot of people will resonate with that because you practice what you preach. A lot of people will put stuff out, but don't practice what they preach. And here you're practicing what you preach. I'll tell you the, the best compliment that I got, you know, that I, what people, the thing that I'm most proud of this, because th this wasn't a book like, oh, it's like, oh, you're a coach. You got to write a book and get it out there and get your sales funnels together. And get, I've got zero marketing. I don't have any sales funnels. There's nothing to sign up for. There's nothing at all. This was a book from the heart. And I started it six years ago and I reread it right before COVID. And I was disgusted with what I'd written. I'm not disgusted. I just, it just didn't, it just, 
it was so riddled with so much. I think the kid wrote the first draft of my book. <laughs> really, seriously. And what I had, this book, like, like you know, it, it, the writing of it just forced me through this cauldron of just like, it just, it, it, it really put me to test. And, you know, sitting through COVID, that's why I said, I'm like, I feel like I just, I'm, I just came out of it. I just, I'm just getting it now, finally. And that's what I had to go through. So it's all from the heart. It's everything that I did. I threw it all in there and I just said, you know what, here it is. And so I encourage you to take a look at it. It's, it's not, I'm not talking about theories. I'm actually sharing with you some just real practical stuff from my experience. And uh, I think you'll find it. I think you'll enjoy it. I mean, I, I got to read my own book in the audible and I remember sitting down when I was done saying to myself, I'm really happy with what I wrote. And I think that's an achievement really. And I'm, and I, and I can, I can, I can take a victory lap around that because I do really believe it took something inside of me to get it to that place. And uh, I'm really excited to share it with you. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm I'm excited that you wrote it, and I'm excited that you came on today and shared it with with the listeners and the viewers, guys. I will put in the show notes everywhere you can find Shashin as his his website, the Audible book, the Amazon, and where you can get the regular book if you want a regular book, you want the Kindle, whatever. If you paperback, if you want to listen to it while you're in the car or whatever. Hopefully, you're listening to the podcast episode on your car, uh, in your car. But um, once again, Shashin, thank you for coming on, and guys. Most importantly, I'll see you on the next chat from the blog cabin, but be blessed and remember, keep chatting and keep chatting with your inner self. I'm going to add that because we need to keep that conversation up with our inner selves. Totally. So bye guys. Thanks so much for having me on. Chats from the blog cabin. We not only have voices for a podcast, but also faces for YouTube. Don't miss your next episode.